right, uh, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, turn to uh, your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. And on the board will be, uh, this is the lesson today. We, remember, we only have one session where I'm teaching. The second session, we have uh, our, one of our deacons, Fred Daniels, is going to uh, do the, uh, we're going to conduct our business meeting, our annual business meeting. So that will be in the second session. And, uh, and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. We'll observe the communion elements at the end of that. So in the first session, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 12, which t- again, we'll be dis- discussing the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, of course, that's uh, different from the rapture, as we've been pointing out. And this brings, ushers in the, tri- uh, the, uh, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So today, in Habakkuk 3, 12, we'll be looking at the fact that Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will actually march against his enemies at his second advent and thresh them, the Bible says. We'll talk about what that means. So that is our uh, subject in the, uh, in the first session. We're almost, almost done with this, uh, first, uh, first, this third chapter of Habakkuk. There's only three chapters. So uh, I haven't decided which book. I have several books ready to go. We're going to go back to the New Testament. You alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. So uh, right now, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. It's a toss-up between two books. So it doesn't really matter. But one in particular, there's always one that uh, it would be perfect for us to do, and that's up to the Holy Spirit to guide me into what that is. So I believe it. I know what it is now, but we'll see. Uh, and also, remember, we have uh, our corporate prayer meetings are at the end of the last Wednesday of each month, so that's going to fall on the 28th of this month, our corporate prayer meeting. We're get, getting a good turnout. That's f- fantastic. And uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think that's, that's about all the announcements I have. Uh, so, uh, again, remember that the, 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 the annual business meeting is coming, is in the second session, and then we're doing the Lord's Supper. So let's get right to it. Uh, we take a moment of silent prayer now to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because if we're not in fellowship with God as children of God, we might be able to understand the, what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures academically. But it's remember, it's spiritual phenomena. So uh, we, if we're going to be able to make pers- uh, proper application and understand the text correctly as it's being taught and then have the application to our lives, the significance to our lives, the implications, we must be in fellowship with God. We must be uh, in tune with what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. So we take that moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because, again, many, any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing, and we maintain the fellowship by obeying the Spirit as He speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given to us another day, another gift, another gift to experience and enjoy creation, and also, of course, uh, to experience fellowship with you, your Son and the Holy Spirit, and all the members of the body of Christ that love your word and are trying to grow to spiritual maturity, become like your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action, which is actually the plan that you've set for us here in the church age. We thank you for the fact that uh, you elected us and eternity past and by predestinating us to adoption as your sons. And also we thank you for the, the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection, and session of your son, Jesus Christ, at your right hand. And we just thank you for the fact that he, through those events in his life, he's accomplished our so great salvation and sanctification and is actually uh, is now setting up the fact that we're going to be uh, reigning with him in his millennial reign. We, know, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection in particular through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification and identifying us with your Son 
and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand. And now, us Gentile believers are united not only to your son, but also you've taught us in your word. We're united to the Jewish remnant of the church that believes in your son to form the new humanity that's going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels as the rulers of this earth uh, at the second advent of your son, which we're studying today, as you know, Father. So I just thank you and praise you for the wonderful blessings that you provided us and that we're actually more than conquerors. We're seated at your right hand and we're going to reign over this earth for a thousand years and, to, to, and bringing glory to you. And we just thank you for the grace that you've given to us as expressed by, in, in the expression of your love and giving us unmerited blessings, blessings that we don't earn or deserve because when we get them because of the merits of your son, Jesus Christ, and our union identification with him. So I also thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of the Spirit, and I pray the Spirit do a mighty work through all of us here in this uh, meeting today. I just pray that each person would be spoken to, help them to understand, learn, and uh, make proper application of what they're being taught. And I just pray, Father, that you would break down any barriers that Satan and his kingdom might be putting up that would hinder that from happening, because we know that he wages war against us, the church, according to what your word taught us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I also uh, pray, Father, for myself, Help me, protect me as well for the enemy as I try to deliver your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help me be humble and sensitive to the Spirit's guise and direction so your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment because your word has taught us that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So, Father, we just uh, pray that the, as a result of this class, all of us can continue to grow in grace, the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and being, and being praise and glory to your, to your name, Father. And uh, we look forward to the day when your, uh, your will, as it's being done in heaven, will be done on this earth. And we look forward to the day when we're reigning with your Son in resurrection bodies. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, we pray. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. We'll get there momentarily. We'll read the chapter and then we'll look at verse 12. Uh, is, as, because that's our verse here that we're going to be working on, uh, which is going to be, again, dis discussing with J Jesus Christ's movements during the second advent. And uh, so this book, for those who might be new coming into this study, remember the these classes are recorded and they're broadcasted uh, through our various websites and podcasts, so there's people all around the globe that are listening to these classes that are being broadcast here. In fact, you can access... Uh, these websites throughout Wednesday.org site, my website. So uh, basically, you've, you, you know, you've absorbed me and I, you know, if I absorbed you. So you're benefiting from that. So you get all these people popping in. And so for their sake, many of you already know uh, what I'm, uh, some of the stuff I've taught. But this, to give you a background on this book, to, to, to find where we are in context in this book, the, this book is written just prior to the, the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah. God was about to discipline the nation, and they would spend 70 years in Babylon because of their uh, unrepentant unfaithfulness. They were believers. Now, there was a small remnant of believers that were faithful, led by people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, of course, Habakkuk and others. And uh, so they were all contemporaries. So this is like 7th century B.C. when this book was written. It's a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk, who it turns out to be was a Levitical priest that wrote songs. And we know this from what he says in this letter, the beginning and the end of this uh, book. And so he's complaining to God, which the, what the occasion was is that he was complaining to God about his people who were in a covenant relationship with God and that they were believers and so they were in apostasy in other words or reversionism or backsliding whatever you want to call it they were at one time being faithful to the Lord but now they did a 180 and were habitually unfaithful and God gave them every chance to repent but they wouldn't repent so the southern kingdom falls followed the example of the northern kingdom which was, uh, God used the Assyrian Empire to destroy that kingdom and, they ne and deport them, and they never returned to the land. However, the southern kingdom of Judah would return to the land according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, as we pointed out. So the dialogue starts off in the four, first four verses with Habakkuk complaining to God about this behavior of his people. Well, God responds to him in verses 5 through 12, as we saw, 5 through 11, and he says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to discipline your people. And as we saw in Jeremiah 25 and other passages, actually, God used uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon not only to discipline his people, but the various uh, pagan Gentile nations that were living in unrepentant idolatry for centuries. 
So he's going to deal with them, judge them as well. And so we get to verses 12 through 17. Habakkuk says, I don't like that choice. And the reason why is because God was using a pagan empire, Gentile pagan empire, to, uh, to deal with his people. Now, Habakkuk should have known this because God said to the Jews through Moses on his farewell, his farewell uh, uh, tour uh, and his, his farewell address to the nation, Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, he said, if you, are, if you go into apostasy, if you are disobeying me habitually, unfaithful to me, then I will bring in foreign nations to deport you from this land. And that's what he did. So uh, Habakkuk, uh, he's, uh, he's complaining to God, but then God comes back in chapter 2 and gives Habakkuk news that he would like. And that was God eventually would destroy Babylon. Okay? Now, that brings out a principle. God, how God governs the nations right up to our present point, time and, and history, and he'll, this is what he's going to do all the way to the end of human history before we have the new heavens and new earth. That is, God uses evil empires to destroy other evil empires. That's what happened uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, was destroyed by another pagan nation, Medo-Persia. And then Alexander's Greece came along and defeated Medo-Persia. Uh, Medo and then we had the Roman Empire defeat the, the, the Greeks. And so on and on and it goes. So uh, evil empires, evil nations are destroyed by other evil nations. And so they, in fact, God uses the principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Many people don't really understand what that means. It means the punishment must fit the crime. So for the very crimes that they committed, those crimes would be committed against them by another evil empire. That's what we saw in, in, in Habakkuk chapter 2. So it's a sobering message for the nations. This book is actually, like a lot of the prophets, it's a message for our nation. It's a warning to our nation in China and Russia, England, every nation on the face of the globe. And that's exactly what this book is try trying to speak to us in our contemporary situation. This is what the Spirit's telling us. But there's also some good news. Chapter 3 is a description of what Jesus Christ is going to do, verses 3 through 15. It's called the Divine Warrior Song by many expositors and scholars. I am in agreement with it. And this is a theme that's all over the Bible. Uh, in fact, uh, we see that uh, Jesus Christ in the, in the book of Revelation, uh, in the chapters 6 through the end of the book, he's a, he's a warrior and he comes to defeat his enemies. And he's going to do it bodily one day and we'll be there to witness it at his second advent. So the Divine Warrior Psalm, in verses 3 through 15, it's a psalm, it's, a, it's also part of a prayer, and it talks about the events of the 70th week of Daniel, and the, the tribulation period, and the second advent of Christ. So we've been using this chart in the past, so, so just to keep you update on this, here's the 70th week of Daniel, a chart I have. Now this, uh, the 70th week, of, 70 weeks prophecy which the 70th week of Daniel is found is in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We've been studying that on Wednesdays in our Day of the Lord series. And the week in this prophecy is, uh, is, is, is seven years. So you have 483 or 69 of these 483 prophetic years, which is equivalent to 69 weeks in this prophecy, have been fulfilled in history, literally. Daniel 9.26 has been fulfilled in history because uh, it, it pr predicts the crucifixion and death of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. But verse 27 of the prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. Nothing corresponds with it in history up to this point. So it's future, as we've pointed out. And Daniel 9.27 talks about that, uh, that, that tremendous personage that the Bible talks about quite a bit. And, it, uh, and Daniel started off talking about him as well as the little horn. And Daniel chapter 7, namely the Antichrist, we call him. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. And he's called the man of lawlessness, lawlessness by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So he's talked about quite a bit because he's important. Now, the church will not be here on the earth when he's waging war against God's people. Uh, right now, we see that the church is waiting. The one prophetic event that we're waiting for in history is the rapture of the church, which is the resurrection of the church. It was not known to Old Testament saints. It, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says it was a mystery, not known to Old Testament saints. The timing of the rapture, the resurrection of the church is found in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says we're delivered from the wrath to come. 
We're not destined for to suffer the, the events of the tribulation period where Jesus Christ is pouring out his wrath against a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus is not a wife beater. We're the bride of Christ. We're gone. And in fact, when you look at Revelation 6 to 18, we're nowhere to be found. The first five chapters were all over the place. But we see him on earth, the church on earth in the first three chapters of Revelation. And then we're in heaven with John and chapters 4 and 5. And then 6 to 18 is all about the seven seal trumpet and bowl judgments called the wrath of the Lamb and the Father poured out upon this world to get people to repent and believe in Jesus to avoid the much greater wrath and the lake of fire. So the church is, is going to be delivered from this time and we are the Holy Spirit who indwells the church, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. The Holy Spirit who indwells each member of the body of Christ. When he's removed, then the, the, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, can appear in the pages of history. And it's not going to happen until we're gone. So once we're gone at the rapture, which is imminent, it could happen at any time. There's no date setting with the rapture, contrary, which is in direct contrast to the second advent, where there are signs preceding the rapture. The rapture is invisible to the world. It's the church being delivered from the tribulation events, the events of the tribulation. The second advent of Christ, Christ, everybody will see him. He'll orbit the earth, Revelation 1-7. Every eye shall see him. And he comes back with the church and their resurrection bodies. The church shows up again in Revelation 19, coming back with him to destroy Antichrist, the false prophet, and also uh, the tribulation armies. And then also, uh, he comes back with the elect angels and Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies, and the churches and resurrection body. So we come back. The church is the new humanity. We're the bride of Christ. We come back, and we're going to, he's going to uh, imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. You and I are going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels who are ruling this world right now. That's right. You heard me say this many times. Don't blame God for the mess of the world and we're, in, and we're enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. He's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world is under his power. All the nations of the earth he gave to Jesus. If he, Jesus would just bow down to him. And of course, uh, he rejected that emphatically with the word of God. But that wouldn't be a legitimate temptation if he doesn't have that kind of power. He does. This is another reason why you should be praying for your nation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 8 talks about that. Because our leaders are being influenced by Satan and his fallen angels. So we come back as the new humanity, and which Paul talks about, the new man in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. We are a privileged people. The church is composed of Jewish and Gentile believers, where we're co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and also fellow partakers of the Messianic promise through faith in Jesus Christ and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So we are going to be a part of this. So prophecy is important because it motivates us for, for godly behavior. It causes us to keep short accounts with God, confess our sins immediately. It, causes, it should motivate us to be faithful because he could come back at any time. But we also have this great future that God has planned for us, and we're going to be rulers. Remember Adam and Eve, they were designed to rule over the works of God's hands, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But we don't see, as Hebrews 2 says, we don't see that. The world is not really subject to mankind. Uh, it's, there's a curse on the world. That's why we, people die and their physical bodies go back to the dust of the ground. That's why we have tsunamis and earthquakes. The world is under a curse and this is because of the fall. So you, Satan usurped the authority of Adam and Eve, but the first step in restoring mankind over the works of God's hands, over the rulers of this earth, was Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible teaches that you, at the moment your justification, your conversion, you are identified with Jesus Christ in that resurrection and session. Ephesians 2, verse 6, 7, and 8. Very important. So then, that means God looks at you as seated at the right hand of God. So the first step in restoring mankind to, as rulers over the works of his hands was through Christ, those events in Jesus' life. And now every time a member of the church, every time somebody in the church age believes in Jesus, you and I, we're put in union with Christ. God looks at us as he looks at his son. So now when we come back, we restore mankind to its rightful position. So, the, so now, the 70th week of the, uh, the, the passage that we're looking at in, a, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, is talking about the day 
we come back with Christ to start the kingdom on this earth and to remove Satan and the fallen angels from this place. And there'll be no more war. No, the curse will be lifted. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that he's waiting for this, the, the, the creation groans, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, you and I. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and resurrection bodies and decorated with rewards. So the rapture precedes the Antichrist uh, treaty. In fact, the rapture triggers the appearance of the Antichrist, who then makes a treaty with Israel, Daniel 9.27. And it ends with the second advent of Christ. It's a seven-year period, and it's broken out into two three-and-a-half-year sections, uh, both of what we call 1260 days according to the Jewish reckoning of time, which is a 360-day calendar. The first three-and-a-half years, it's like a cold war, peace. Paul calls it in 2 Thessalonians, this peace and security people think they have because they have this new dynamic ruler who is speaks unbelievably tremendous charismatic speaker the world has never seen before and he is just a tremendous, tremendous dynamic leader and he'll be ahead of the final stage of the Roman Empire and he's going to be a Roman. That's right, he'll be a Roman because he comes from the people, it says in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and that was the Romans. So what we see in the United States of Europe right now, they're trying to unite Europe, and in some instance they have, the European common market. There's going to be a 10-nation European confederacy with Antichrist ruler of it during this period. So when he breaks the treaty, and he does this with two abominations, one, he sits down in the rebuilt Jewish temple. It will be rebuilt, sitting right there on the, what we see where the Dome of the Rock is, the Muslim mosque. He's going to sit down in the rebuilt Jewish temple and declare himself God. He desecrates the temple, and he actually sits between the wings of the cherubim, just like God speaking to Moses did in the, in the tabernacle. The other one, talked about by the Lord in Matthew 24, and we see it's in Revelation 13, is the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist. During the tribulation period, he sets up an image of, G, of, the, of the Antichrist and that is the one that Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. When you see that, talking to the Jewish people at that time, run. It'll be the worst time in all of history. In fact, if he didn't come back, if we didn't come back with Christ the second advent, the human race would be exterminated. They'd be wiped off the face of the earth. That's how bad it's going to be. So the population of this world is going to be decimated dramatically. In fact, through those judgments of Revelation 6 to 18, Everything that you see, your homes, your businesses, well, all the great football stadiums, Fenway Park, I come from New England, that's going to be gone. This whole place is going to be a parking lot. That's why you're told in the Bible not to love the things of this world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Don't hang on to them too closely because they'll be taken away from you or you'll be taken away from them one way or the other. So, when we come back, to end this all, that's what Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 4, 15 is talking about. That's what we're looking at in Habakkuk 3, 12. So let's look at, with that introduction out of the way, look at chapter 3 of Habakkuk, and then we're going to go look at, we're going to, so we're going to read the whole chapter, as I've been pointing out, because we want to study verse 12 in its context. See, as I said this many times, many false teachers... And people who teach false doctrine and the cults, that's what they do. They'll take one verse and pull it out of its context. In fact, they don't even pay any attention to the context. Where, what came before it? What came after it? How does this fit into the whole Old Testament? How does this fit into the whole Bible? Okay, that's a principle of, of, of hermeneutics, the art and science of interpretation. So Habakkuk 3.1 says, A prayer of the Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shagayanah. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now we have the beginning of the divine warrior psalm. God came from Teman. And this again is speaking of, of he's coming, that, that place, Teman. And it says, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Paran, Selah. Paran and Teman were actually in the southern, uh, southern, uh, south, south of Israel. And they were in a place, what we call today, the kingdom of Jordan. Okay, so this is talking about Jesus Christ that is second advent. We'll see it again today. And there's a, a cross-reference passage in Isaiah 63 that talks about Jesus Christ having blood on his garments because he's he's killed his enemies. 
That's something the world doesn't want to hear about with Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah. He's also the Lamb of God. You have a, have a balanced biblical view of Jesus. He's not this, you know, they, they want him to be the God of love, even though they don't know what God's love really is. Okay? But he's the Lion of Judah, and he's the Lamb of God, and he's the greatest warrior of all time. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, and pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. When he touches the earth at the second advent, there'll be a massive worldwide earthquake the world has never seen, changing the topography of Jerusalem and the world. And we'll be witnesses to it. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. And that's speaking in context of Israel. We'll see that next week. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah, that is talking about the execution of the Antichrist by Jesus Christ himself. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, the Jews at the time, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. That's the end of the psalm. Now we have Habakkuk's response to the revelation that he's received in this book. Now in the, in the, in the first three chapters up to this point, he says, I heard... And my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound because he knows the Babylonians are about to destroy his nation. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So he knows from chapter 2 of this book that God's going to judge Babylon after they've been uh, used by God to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Why? Because of the Babylonian invasions of 605, 597, and 586 BC. It'll totally devastate the economy, which is an agricultural economy back then. But here he goes and says this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instrument. See, he's a musician, he's a songwriter. And this was lyrics to a song. In fact, this Divine Warrior song, this book was sung in the Terence Temple when Jesus walked in there 2,000 years ago. And it'll be sung in, the, in the, also the Millennial Temple, which is described in great detail for us in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. So Habakkuk 3.12 if you look at my translation on the board, it goes as follows. It says, you will march against the inhabitants of the earth in a state of righteous indignation. You will thresh the citizens of the nations in a state of anger. So Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 12 contains two more poetic prophetic declarations which parallel each other because both speak of the Lord Jesus Christ in a state of wrath. And the word wrath there speaks of his righteous indignation. And he'll be expressing it at his second advent in a bodily fashion. And both statements in this verse speak of the human race on planet Earth being the objects of this righteous indignation. The purpose of this second advent is to imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. To, and by the way, remember I've been telling you 1 Corinthians 6.3. Paul said to the Corinthians, who were not exactly spiritually mature individuals, okay, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? The purpose of his second advent is to imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years, to kill Antichrist and the false prophet, and to kill every unrepentant human being on the earth. This is his planet. He gave, he, this is his water. And this is his air. It's his trees. It's his earth. It's his planet. It's his universe. And he gets to do what he wants to do. He's the boss. 
And if you don't like it like the devil doesn't like it, well, that's gonna, not going to go well for you because then he's going to deal with you severely. Though he did everything he could to keep members of the human race who are not believers in Jesus, unregenerate people, he did everything he could to keep them out from his wrath, to avoid his wrath, when he suffered the wrath of God himself on the cross 2,000 years ago. When he said, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the wrath of God, which when you experience the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever, you're abandoned by God. That was what Jesus, for the first time, had to lose fellowship with his father. He offered himself to the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14. The Trinity was not, was not affected in any, any way or any fashion. It's indivisible. It's the fellowship between the Father and the Son that was affected. Think about how much he loved you and I and the rest of the human race by will, be willing to be abandoned by his Father. What do you think he was crying out to the Father, pleading with him three times, Father, let this cup pass. Not my will, but your will will be done. Because that was what he was facing. And... He didn't want to lose that fellowship. That's how much he loved his father. We can't even identify with that, but he did it anyways, voluntarily. And he also suffered the wrath of the crucifixion. He had two scourgings. And then this physical death, which, by the way, is by his own volition. He dismissed his spirit. So there's no reason for anybody to go to the lake of fire to suffer God's wrath for all of eternity. And don't tell me when you die... You no longer exist. That's not what the Bible says. Because if you read Revelation 19 and 20, when the Antichrist and the false prophet are killed and thrown in a lake of fire after the millennium and the great white throne judgment, Satan is deposited with his angels. His sentence is executed. Their sentence is executed at that time, finally. And they're thrown in a lake of fire. And it says the, the, the beast and the false prophet is still there. Don't tell me you just disappear. No. It's a real place, and God doesn't want anybody to go face his wrath. And all you have to do is trust in Jesus as your Savior. It's not how, what you have to You can't do anything to measure up to perfection. That's why the Son, who's perfect, came and did what we couldn't do. He was able to live the life of perfect obedience that he, the Father, requires in order to have a relationship and a fellowship with him if it's based upon your obedience. It has to be perfect obedience, and we can't do it. And he suffered the consequences of our sins and not keeping his law by suffering the wrath of God on the cross, which we're going to bring into remembrance during the Lord's Supper. So the purpose of the second advent is to imprison Satan, the fallen angels, his fellow evil spirits, for a thousand years, to kill Antichrist and the false prophet and kill every unrepentant human being on the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ will also exercise his righteous indignation during the 70th week of Daniel through the seven seal, trumpet, and bold judgments recorded in Revelation 6 to 18. And we're going to study each one of them in our Day of the Lord series on Wednesday evenings. However, we see that at his second advent, advent, Jesus Christ will come down from heaven. He will bodily exercise his righteous indignation at his second advent. From the place he ascended, remember Acts chapter 1? And when he ascended into heaven, he'd be seated at the right hand of the Father in fulfillment of the, the Son of Man passage going up to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Okay? He goes into heaven, sits down at the right hand of the Father, and the, his, I was talking to Rex before the class, and we were talking about the Chosen and uh, the, new, the new season out, and we, you know, talking about the Son of Man. He's calling himself the Son of Man. And the Pharisees and the scribes are going berserk over that because he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Jesus was saying that. Every time he used that title of himself for himself more than any other designation in the Gospels, Son of Man. So he comes back bodily with us. The Old Testament saints in resurrection bodies. The tribulational martyrs in resurrection bodies. The elect angels. The bride of Christ, us, the church. And he will bodily exercise his wrath, his righteous indignation at the second advent. And ultimately, the purpose of the second advent is to deliver his people both regenerate Jews and Gentiles, from Satan and the fallen angels, the Antichrist and the false prophet, as well as the armies of the Gentiles uh, of the tribulation, and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And then the prayer will be fulfilled. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first prophetic statement that we see in Habakkuk 3.12 is again figurative language, and it asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to march 
against the inhabitants of planet Earth in a state of wrath, which speaks of his righteous indignation. Specifically, he will march against every unrepentant, unregenerate sinner on the face of the earth at his second advent in order to take military action against them so as to kill them. So Jesus is a great commander. He's a soldier, too. People don't realize that about him. In fact, he was a soldier back in the Old Testament. He's the pre, he was the theophanies, the Christophanies of Jesus, the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ, visible and auditory. He's called the great warrior. He's the ultimate of all, the, 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 pen, the greatest of all warriors. He's greater than, he's greater than all the great commanders of the, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. He's greater than Patton, MacArthur. Anybody want to put up there the great commanders? Napoleon. Nobody stands a chance. In fact, Napoleon said famously that Jesus, with Jesus, he could go and ask for legions upon legions who people who out of love will do whatever he wants and go to their death for him. Whereas he has to rule by fear, Napoleon did. Jesus, he has his soldiers will do it for love. Why do you think Paul sacrificed so much and the other apostles and gave their lives and suffered terribly? They served him because out of love because of what he did for them. And that's the way we should be. So this first prophetic statement will be fulfilled at the second advent of Christ and not during the 70th week of Daniel. And that's indicated by the fact that it asserts the Lord will be marching against his enemies in a passage I mentioned to you before and we talked about when we did Habakkuk 3.3. Isaiah 63, 1-3, describes the second advent and it describes Jesus as marching against his enemies. He's marching implies that he will bodily and personally exercise his righteous indignation against unrepentant, unregenerate sinners on planet Earth. So hold your place. Go to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 63, please. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. All right, you all there? Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra? Now, this is a location south of Israel. It's called today, the, the location, the ancient locations, Edom and Basra, Teman. They're in a place called the kingdom of Jordan today. Okay? Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this? robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of the one trading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. The Net Bible translation of these verses goes as follows. It's a little bit, a little bit better. Who is, this one, who is this one coming from Edom, dressed in bright red, coming from Basra? Who is this, the one wearing royal attire, who marches confidently because of his great strength, his omnipotence? It is I, the one who announces vindication, vindication of himself. You think about all oh, the son of a guns throughout history who use his name as a swear word, a byword, and they mock him and say his coming back again is a, is, and they make a mockery of it. Peter talks about this, and Jude does in their, in their epistles, and they mock him. Oh, yeah, he's going to come back again. Yeah, yeah, he's going to come back again. Sure, he is. Pie in the sky. Well, you know what? And I said to somebody in my family, you know why he hasn't come back yet? He's waiting for you to stop being so stubborn and trust in him because he doesn't want to send you to the lake of fire and experience his wrath. That's why, arrogant one, I didn't say arrogant one, but that was what I was thinking. You've got to be kidding me. He hasn't come back because he wants people to repent. Second Peter 3, 9, didn't he say that? Peter say that? Yes. He doesn't want to judge anybody. So if you reject the son, 
then what, what else, God, can he do for you? You have either one choice, life or death. Lake of fire or eternal life. What do you want to do? Choice is yours. God said, this is what I want. I want you to be with me. So he marches confidently because of his strength. It is I, the one who announces vindication and who is able to deliver. You think about this. Here's a world, as I said before, he's created. These creatures of his, men, human beings and angels. In this world, and this country, America, which is becoming more and more and more and more idolatrous every day. When I say idolatrous, I'm saying that they put things, the worship of things and people that, and ahead of their worship of God. We're materialistic, like no other nation on the face of the earth. We're the most material, materialistic empires of all time. We love our stuff and our flat screen TVs and our, our Teslas. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're crazy. We, we, we give pro athletes all kinds of ridiculous salaries. Meanwhile, our, our, our police and, our, and our, uh, our teachers are making nothing compared to these people. And they're more important than the athletes. Or our soldiers who are fighting us, fighting, uh, protecting us from the enemy outside of our borders. How do we treat them? Not very well compared to the athletes. The athletes that entertain us, get all the adulation. That tells you how whacked out we are. We got everything absolutely backwards, upside down. Right is wrong now, and wrong is right. Just like Old Testament Israel, and they got disciplined for it, big time. And this country is idolatrous like no other nation. We worship at the altar of materialism, and money, and stuff, and entertainers, and athletes. Taylor Swift, if I hear, an, I love Taylor, she's good singer, and te, if I hear another thing about, shut the TV off, I have to, just shut the TV off, because you know, I don't want to see another football game when I see her face, I never just play the stupid game, I don't want to see her. Now the Taylor Swift, the Swifty fans are going to have me, have my head after, the, after class, but what my point is, we're just out of our minds, Americans, and we wonder why we're in such a mess, suicide, we're the sickest nation in the world. We have the highest incident of cancer, heart disease. We're finding it in 20-year-olds. We have, we have, we have, we have uh, dementia is at all-time high in this country more than any other place on the face of the earth. We're a sick nation. And yet, we got a pill for everything, right? But we and we have sick hearts, our country. We are a sick nation. Look at the suicide rates. A guy I went to high school with, graduated with, committed suicide the other day. In his car in Louisiana, he had a business in Louisiana, several kids. I knew my, my, my mother and my father were close friends with his mother and father. His father passed away not too long ago from cancer. He was a great buddy of my father's. So it was another loss for him. And then this kid goes and commits suicide. I've lost, I've lost, I, when I came to, out of Iowa, I was on the heels of a suicide of one of the kids in my church at 21 years old. And then I had two friends after that within a six-month period who committed suicide. We got alcoholism, drug abuse. You want to talk about the homelessness in this country? 99% of those people are because of drug and alcohol use and associated mental illness. That's right. I've been dealing with that thing for a long time. I got friends who deal with that kind of stuff. And let me tell you, a lot of these people are playing the system, or they got and it's a sad situation because they're taking over New England. I mean, they got, they got them, they're putting them up in hotels for crying out loud, and they're in the airports. And there was an article in the Globe that the homelessness, they're interviewing these homeless people in Boston. Now, the Boston Globe is not exactly a conservative rag. It's it's liberal in its politics, big time. They interview these people. And every single one of them, the, the writer said, these people who are homeless, they blame themselves for their own bad decisions. But the, but the writer dismissed it. That's the other thing. We don't take responsibility for our actions in this country. So what do you think that, you know, why do you think that's the case? We've rejected the truth who is Jesus. We started, why do you think we became a, a major power? In fact, the United States is a very unique country. No nation on the face of the earth, not in the Roman Empire, none of them, started off with a Judeo-Christian ethic, a respect for the Bible. Even the founders of this country, even some like Jefferson, who were deists, they had a respect for the scriptures. 
And we moved away from that. Why? Well, obviously, we got, we have, we're a melting pot. We have these people coming into our country who have different religions, different type way of doing things, and they don't come from a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, you might be saying, don't be like the Egyptians and maybe a xenophobics, because I look at that as a good thing. Then I can give them the gospel. Because this country, it needs the truth. We got sick minds, sick bodies, and the only way for solution to this problem is the gospel. That's right. If you don't think so, then you're part of the problem. You and I need to know that and believe that and have that conviction. I believe the gospel can change anything and everyone. The problems we have in this country are satanic and also human. The whole world, Paul says, is under the wrath of God because it's enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. We're responsible too. We make bad decisions. We disobey God. The only solution to those problems is the good news message that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, became a human being and was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father to deliver us from enslavement to sin and Satan's cosmic system, from physical and spiritual death, deliverance from the curse, and deliverance from the uh, condemnation of the lake of fire forever. And all you have to do is trust in him as Savior. It's a gift. Here's $10,000. Do you want it? Or ten, let's make it big. $10 billion. And you say, what do I got to do for that? You don't have to do anything. Just take it. It's a gift. Oh, that's salvation. It's that easy. It has to be that easy. We're spiritually dead. How can spiritually dead people do anything for themselves? All you can do is take it, accept the gift. You're by, saved by grace through faith, not a works lest any man should boast. So, the world, this country, it's heading in this, this empire, the American empire, which I believe was began around World War I, after World War I. And we bailed the Brits out and the other people out. And then we did it again. And then we had the, the massive military-industrial complex of the United States. By the way, Eisenhower warned us about that as he was departing office, if you read, if you see it's what he said. But we had the super, the greatest superpower. Nobody's ever seen the likes of us on the face of the earth. Nobody's ever seen anything, the technological advances that we have. I have friends that, who work on so, that military application. I, I, it's scary what we can do. I mean, it's nuts. We're nuts. We're crazy. We're like, it's like Star Trek, okay? I mean, so, but you know what? Despite all that, we can be defeated. If all, this, all it has to do is God has to say the word, say, you know what? My patience has come to an end. And he'll say that the day that this country says no more to truth, no more to the gospel, and try to do it their own way like their father the devil. That by that's why, that was his theme song, My Way, by Frank Sinatra. He's gonna do it his, his way. Guess what? It's disaster. It's gotta be God's way. It's gotta be Jesus' way, who is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you gotta do it there, because you know what? You can't have success and fulfillment and joy Okay? And peace in this world without them. You were created to have a relationship and a fellowship with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they want to have a relationship with all the people around here that are all screwed up. The homeless people, the homosexual, the lesbian, the Democrat, the Republican, the independent. Okay? Black, white, Hindu, whatever you are. Okay? The Islamic people. Yes. Everybody. He likes diversity, God, but he also likes unity. And so now, right now, he's calling out a people for themselves, and we're one of those people that was snatched out of the fire. The church. So now we're to share the message. We're obligated to share the message and to live the message out. We can't sit there and just talk about it all the time. Let people see your light shine through your godly behavior and doing your job at work as under the Lord, as raising your family according to what the Word of God says, as husband and wife loving each other, as the, God, the Bible says to, wives obey your husbands in all things as under the Lord, and men love your wives like Christ loved the church. Have respect for authority, the police, the president, our leaders. They're there for our tranquil behavior, so that we might live a tranquil, quiet life, and God wants all people to be saved. That's why we should pray for President Biden and his cabinet and everybody and the Democrats and the Republicans and everybody. 
That's our responsibility. We, we're in a different plane. We're on a different plane than the rest of the planet. We're the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're spiritual aristocracy. We're going to rule this earth. Why are your clothes red? They will say to him at his second advent. We'll be seeing this. We'll be witness to this. Why do you look like someone who has stomped on grapes in a vat? I have stomped grapes, Jesus will answer, in the wine press all by myself. No one from the nations joined me because they all rejected him, pretty much. I stomped on them in my anger. I trampled them down in my rage. Their juice splashed on my garments and stained all my clothes. So not only, you can go back to Habakkuk 3.12, not only is the first prophetic statement recorded in Habakkuk 3.12, prophetic of the second advent of Jesus Christ, but it's also alluding to the pre-incarnate Christ leading the Exodus generation. That's indicated by Psalm 68, verses 7 through 8. It says on the board in the Net Bible translation, O God, when you lead your people into battle, when you march through the desert, the earth shakes. Yes, the heavens poured down rain from before God, the God of Sinai. Before God, the God of Israel. Now, the second prophetic statement in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 12, on the NIV translation, it says, uh, it says um, let me get back here. To Habakkuk 3.12. Where are you? There we go. Habakkuk 3.12. So it says, In wrath you strode the earth. That's the first prophetic statement. And then it says, In anger you threshed the nations. So the second prophetic statement there is also figurative like the first. And it asserts that Jesus will thresh the citizens of the nations in a state of anger at his second advent. And this anger speaks of his righteous indignation, as we pointed out. And that's because it's a synonym for his wrath. The Lord will thresh the citizens of the nations at his second advent in the sense that the breaking action of the threshing of grain speaks of the total and complete defeat of his enemies. That's what it talks about. So therefore we say this second prophetic statement recorded in Habakkuk 3.12 will also be fulfilled at the second advent of Jesus Christ and not during his, the 70th week of Daniel. And that's indicated again by its connection with the first prophetic statement in the verse. They're connected because both prophetic statements mention the Lord exercising his wrath, his righteous indignation against unrepentant people. And secondly, both mention human beings on earth, but from different perspectives. In what sense? Well, the first prophetic statement mentions the human race from the perspective that they inhabit the earth, while on the other hand, the second one mentions them from the perspective that they are citizens of the nations. As I said before, people get ready. That song... Rod Stewart covered it with Jeff Beck one time. People get ready. That's a great song. People get ready. We should get ready, but the people of the world, get ready. This is a warning. The prophets of Israel, what was this written around? 7th century B.C. under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it has a message for this country and the countries of the world as we speak today. It's right to rest addressing them. In fact, if this is the rapture generation that we're in, these people who are in the earth today better wake up. Because then, here it comes. We're gone, and the salt of the earth has disappeared from the face of the earth. There'll be no more believers on the earth at that time. Of course, many Jews will believe, and Gentiles, by, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and, and reading the Gospels, reading the Scriptures, just like you and I did. So, we see that the Lord's anger, the first prophetic statement, mentions these people, the people of the earth from the perspective that they inhabit the earth, while on the other hand, the second one mentions them from the perspective that they are citizens of the nations. So, the Lord's anger and his wrath, again, both refer to his righteous indignation. What's that mean? It's his legitimate anger towards sin. Sin is a bad thing to God, if you haven't figured that out. He hates sin so much that he had to send judge for the sins of the world. Just so we can have a relationship, a chance. He hates sin that much. It's contrary to his character and nature. God's righteous indignation actually expresses his holiness, which pertains to the absolute perfection of his character. You know, when, God, when the Bible says God's holy, it means that his character transcends that of his moral, rational creatures. It speaks more than just his righteousness and justice. It's speaking the fact that his character... His character, the aggregate features of his divine attributes, put them all together, are superior, transcend 
the characters, the character of, his hu of human beings and angels, his moral, rational creatures. In other words, there is nobody like him. That's what it means to be holy when it's used of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ will express his righteous indignation against every unregenerate, unrepentant human being on earth at his second advent. He will also express this righteous indignation against Satan and the fallen angels by imprisoning them for a thousand years. And he will also express this righteous indignation against the Antichrist and the false prophet by killing them and then throwing them alive in the lake of fire, Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. And the expression of this righteous indignation will be a manifestation of his holiness. So God's holiness is expressing the purity of his character or moral perfection and excellence and means that God can have nothing to do with sin or sinners. He's totally separate from sin and sinners unless a way can be found to constitute them holy. And that way has been provided based upon the merits of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. So, when you and I got saved, when we were declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ, whatever that was, at that moment, you became holy. When the Bible uses holiness related to the believer, it's talking about our sanctification. That means you've been set apart to serve God exclusively at the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to, it's in three stages. Positional, what God did for us at our justification. Perfective, what he's going to do for us in our resurrection body. And experiential, that's our spiritual life. We can experience this, this, uh, our hol the holiness of God, our sanctification, to obeying God's word. When you sin, confess it. 1 John 1, 9. Stay in fellowship, obey his word. That's when we're making an impact on the earth. That's when we're making an impact in our families, in our culture, in our country. This is what the country needs, is us, the church. It starts with us. It starts with us and say, well, we're just a little ragtag group of Christians in this world now, in this country. Oh, give me a break. What do you think Jesus and the apostles did and the early disciples of Jesus? They were in a, most, in a wicked pagan empire just like America, and worse, and worse. And they turned the world upside down. Slavery was a huge institution, like it was in America not too long ago, but without a shot being fired because of the gospel. And because slave owners and slaves believed in Jesus and they were interacting with each other in the local assemblies, slavery was gone from the Roman Empire within three centuries. It's gone. And they didn't have to fight a war for it over this. So why is that? They believed in the power of the gospel. That can cure racism. That's right. If you're, if, if I say this to my African American friends, I say, yeah, they, they, they believers, and I say, well, guess what? Through the baptism of the Spirit, you and I actually, the race thing is actually gone because you're my brother now, and it's in a spiritual sense, which transcends what we are in, a, in the natural realm. You say, yeah, you're, you're, you're a Gentile, right? I go, yeah, obviously, unless you're Sammy Davis Jr., you're a Jew, right? And I said, you're black, I'm white, you're a Gentile, I'm a Gentile, I'm a believer in Jesus, you're a believer. We're brothers. We're brothers. I said, you're stuck with me. There it is. Okay? I got one on either side of me. I call myself the Oreo cookie. Okay? I feel like I'm a part of an Oreo cookie. I'm, I'm the white, one white guy between these two big black guys, right? So, and they're both believers. I was like, I, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel changes everything. It does. It totally changed the world. If we only believe it, it could change our country. There's still hope for our country. There's still hope for this nation. There is. You could be an invisible hero simply by doing what you're doing, learning God's word, putting it into practice, having sanctified time alone with God, time alone with God and prayer in the word, going to your, your local church, practicing the command to love one another. By this, all people will know your disciples of Jesus. At work, doing your job as under the Lord. At home, raising your kids in, in a godly fashion. And also, husbands, again, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives will be your husbands in all things as unto the Lord. Okay? That's going to change the culture. You can do it. We can do it. Together we can do it. Individually. It's not over yet. We're still here. The rapture hasn't taken place yet. Okay? So we can manifest the holiness of God through our spiritual life. Experiencing our sanctification. So the presence of evil, sin, 
injustice is totally absent in the character of God. Thus, God does not tolerate evil or sin because it's contrary to his character and nature, i.e. his inherent moral qualities, ethical standards, and principles. Webster's, they define holiness as the quality or state of being holy, sanctity. And they define sanctity as, this, as sacred or hallowed character. One of the de definitions that Webster uh, gives for the adjective holy is entitled to worship or profound rel religious reverence because of divine character or origin or connection with God or divinity. And one of the definitions of the noun for the noun character is that, it, that they provide is that it's the aggregate of features and traits that form the apparent individual nature of some person or thing. So therefore, people, if we paraphrase these definitions, we can say that God's holiness refers to the aggregate, some total, of perfect features and traits that form the divine nature of God. So therefore, God's holiness refers to this absolute perfection of his character, expressing his purity of character, moral perfection, and excellence, and intolerance, and opposition and rejection of sin and evil. Thus, God is totally separate from his creatures. Thus, God's holiness is related to all of his attributes. Or in other words, it's the, simply the harmony of all of his perfections, his divine attributes. So therefore, God's wrath, which is in reality his righteous indignation, is an expression of his holiness, righteousness, and love, and opposition to sin and evil. God hates sin so much, and loves the sinner so much, that he judged his son for every human being on the face of the earth, every sin in human history, past, present, and future, was imputed, credited to Christ, and he suffered the consequences for our sins. Only way that this world and this country and the inhabitants of this earth can avoid the righteous indignation, the wrath of God, is to believe on Jesus Christ, John 3.36. All those judgments, as we close, of Revelation 6-18, the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments, it's got a dual purpose. One, yes, to judge the earth with their unrepentant sinful behavior. But also, doing that, crisis evangelism. At that time, you're going to have the wrath of God being poured out. Satan is, removed, is, is, is kicked out of heaven. Read Revelation 12. By Michael and the elect angels, him and his angels are cast to the earth. So you get the wrath of the Lamb, God, and Satan all on the earth at the same time at that time. While we're sitting in heaven. Okay? Waiting to come back. Okay? Just waiting to get out of the locker room and jump onto the field. That's exactly what we'll be doing. Okay? So... He wants them to change their mind about him. And many will not. Many will not. So, when you pray for your, your, your fellow citizens in this country, in your neighborhood, and those people that you find repulsive because of their ungodly behavior, okay? Pray for them that God will bring in whatever circumstances, people, blessings, adversities, anything, that will show them their need for Jesus. When you do that though, and I can attest to it in my own life, all hell's gonna break loose in your family <laughs> and in your nation, because that's unfortunately the way us human beings are. We're stubborn, most of us. I got saved through crisis evangelism, from a stupid decision I made in my life, and it caused me to see my need for Jesus, and here I am now, I can't believe, it. if you asked me at 19 that I'd be a pastor, in Huntsville, Alabama, in the deep south? How in the world do they have a Massachusetts boy who drops his eyes, okay, and talks too fast? How do they, how does he come down to Alabama in the deep south? You know, in Massachusetts, we, we're scared of the south, okay? You know, Kennedy got killed in the south. We're still, we're still ducking around down here when we come down here. That's God's sense of humor. That's God saying, I like it. It makes us, puts a smile on my face. That's why I'm here. Okay, it pleases him. So you're stuck with me. So let's go out and let's just try to practice what we talked about in this lesson and pray for each other to help us out to get, get this uh, message out to the world and try to live a life that's pleasing to God that will be uh, manifest to people that there is a God, there is a hope for this world. There is a way out from this disaster that we have going on in our country and around the world. Before it's too late and there's then... And comes the judgment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that each person will be spoken to and all of us as, as a corporate unit. I thank you for every single person that's here. I thank you so much for uh, bringing me to Alabama. I thank you for this church, the leadership of our church, 
Please give us the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this, country, uh, this congregation. I just uh, lift up our leaders and the, and the civil, civil government, the president, and the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, local government. I just pray for them that they would be influenced by godly people. I just pray you would help us to be invisible heroes, Father, making an invisible impact in our families, our, our neighborhoods, our country, everywhere we go, and in the angelic realm, and, uh, and also around the globe. And uh, we know that these lessons are being uh, broadcast around the globe and as we speak. So I just pray, Father, that you would use us mightily as your instrument to get the gospel out to a lost and dying world, and so that we might save them from the wrath of the Lamb that's going to be coming upon this earth and at any moment. In Jesus' name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right, uh, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back for the, the, um, the meeting, the business meeting, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper.